Uh, let's pray as we have a look through this chapter together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this church leadership and Christian behavior manual of Titus that we've been looking through now for two weeks. We pray that you'd uh, teach us more about yourself, teach us how we can glorify you in our lives and uh, show us how we can encourage others to uh, take you seriously and believe the words that we uh, believe from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Uh, well, last week we saw how important the truth of the Bible is because it's what leads to godliness. So truth leads to godliness. Uh, that was what we saw in chapter one. We saw how important it was then to have godly elders who then protect that truth within a church context. We also saw that uh, we are not a people who do good works, who live in a godly way to be saved, but we live in a godly way because we are saved. Salvation through grace comes first. Uh, so Titus 3, we looked at verse 5, uh, in next week's chapter actually, which reminds us Jesus saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And uh, last week's chapter, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, uh, whatever we do doesn't affect our salvation in it our salvation but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure in other words uh, salvation is through jesus alone and godliness comes out of our salvation not to earn it uh, paul used the word elect uh, in his first chapter uh, to reflect that idea that it is god's work to save not ours the purpose then in living a godly way uh, is, is not to earn our salvation but because we have it and then that godliness demonstrates that we are saved. Uh, it does not save us. Uh, that was the focus in the second part of chapter one, where Paul rebuked those who were teaching that in order to be saved, you needed to do good works. And he also rebuked all the other worldly ideas that we might listen to outside of salvation in Jesus alone. But godliness is not just proof of our salvation that we saw last week. In this week's chapter, Godliness, how we behave, is a key part in God's plan to spread his good news across the world. Let me say that again. Our godliness is a key part in God's plan to spread his good news across the world. Have you caught up? Brilliant. Uh, our first point then, and I think you'll agree this is one of my more snappy points. Godliness in the context of eternity affects, attracts others to the gospel. I know you're going to remember that at breakfast tomorrow morning. Just like that. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, look at the end of these following verses. Uh, they're going to pop up on the screen or you've got them in your, your passage from today's chapter. Uh, after instructions about living in a godly way, this is why we should do it from the end of a few sections through today's verses. So end of verse five says, live in a godly way so that no one will malign the word of God. Or verse eight, live in a godly way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have, have nothing bad to say about us. Or verse 10, live in a godly way, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. In other words, if the Christian church doesn't look any better from the community around us in terms of a biblical standard living, then the gospel we claim to be the power of God for salvation may appear to be ineffective. It may malign the word of God. It won't make what we're teaching attractive 
to those who are looking in. It undermines God's truth. It dishonors his glory and fails to attract more to his grace. It's quite a strong thought, isn't it? Uh, verse 11 to 13, uh, if you have a look at that, uh, again, or they'll pop up on the screen, makes this even clearer. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So here Paul uses the idea of appearing twice, first in verse 11, disappearing he's using to describe, Je in fact, both appearings he's describing Jesus. But this is the first appearing of Jesus. The grace that has appeared is the first coming of Jesus that offered salvation to all people. So it was an appearing of Jesus that came in grace. Uh, then verse 12 uh, assumes a positive reaction to this grace that Jesus has brought, this offer of salvation. Verse 12, what does his grace do? Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the grace of God, salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus alone, who died on the cross to take our punishment before God so that we can live with him, who then rose again, does more than just save us for eternity. It gives us, uh, it teaches us, sorry, to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. In other words, we are on a journey of ever increasing godliness because of our salvation. Salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. And all of that is in the context of verse 13. Uh, bear with, keep, keep going with me. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing, so the second appearing, of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So all of that teaching in godliness comes in the context of knowing that Jesus will appear again, that blessed hope. And this time he won't appear in grace. It will be defined in him appearing in glory. And we will be caught up in that if we are saved by grace and proved our salvation through our pursuit of godliness in this life. That is the blessed day when Christ returns that we await for with excitement and anticipation while we are learning to live in godliness. Which is why... However bad life gets, and if you look at, like, over the last 18 months, just for many it's been very difficult, we can still live a life of godliness. Because in the present, we don't live based on our circumstances, we live in the context, our godliness lives in the context of that blessed hope, that second appearing of Christ. In the excitement and the joy and the satisfaction and the comfort of knowing he will return and come in great glory. And it's only with that mindset, uh, that blessed and sure hope, based on the undeserved grace and salvation that we receive through Christ's appearing, that we can live godly, sacrificial, disciplined, self-controlled, loving lives today, as the rest of this chapter calls us to. Uh, verse 14 uh, puts it like this. Uh, Jesus gave himself to us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from wickedness, to purify for himself a people who are eager to do what is very good. He wants us to be godly as a result of his salvation from our wickedness. Uh, 
so in other words, take heart, I guess, is what I'm saying. If we look through this call and challenge to godliness, which at times will probably make us feel uh, bad and call us to repentance for our own lives, it's in the context of what we've already been given and that blessed hope that is set before us. And this is then how we want to live. He saved us to purify for himself the pure people who are eagerly wanting to do what is good. I guess the question, are we eagerly wanting to do what is good for Jesus today? So in that context, okay. let's go through uh, some of the groups in which, which um, Paul now explains what godliness is. So the first one is godliness for older men. Have a look at verse two. Uh, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Now, first of all, Paul isn't just talking about old men, like, uh, I won't mention names. Um, <laughs> it's much more of a kind of a, a relative term. I, uh, older men set the example to younger men. And in that sense, any adult men who have people who are younger than them will be setting this sort of example. It's what flows through the rest of the passage, talking about older women, younger women, older men, younger men. If you're older, you should be setting the example to those that are younger. Uh, obviously, though, the older you get, and there is a sense of this as well in the passage, I think, the more responsibility your godliness has as an example to others, partly just because there are many more younger men or women when we get to that section around uh, when you get older. So older men are to be, uh, there's a few things. Firstly, he says temperate or sober-minded. Think things through clearly there's a lot to get through so i'm just going to leave you with the, a lot of these things we'll dig into a few here and there so temperate sober-minded think through things clearly the next one was worthy of respect uh, so dignified or we keep our minds from the sort of cheap and the showy things of this life and instead keep our minds on the noble and the good and the moral things of this life so that we are worthy of respect and, and dignified in the way we live our lives Thirdly, he mentions self-control. This is a central characteristic, so we all need to leave, listen here. It comes up for every category of person in this chapter. Self-control is key to God's people to live a life of godliness. In other words, godliness doesn't come naturally. We don't wake up by default and behave in a godly way. We need to be self-controlled and work at it to be disciplined, as we thought about last week. And then fourthly, for older men, there's this uh, triad of specifically Christian characteristics to work on. He talks about being sound in faith, in love and endurance or, or steadfastness or perseverance in the faith. Uh, that triad of sound doctrine uh, and faith is obviously, are obviously good traits for all of us to live towards, aren't they, if we believe and trust the word of God. But it's interesting they're pointed out specifically here for older men. Perhaps that's because older men at the time had a tendency to soften their views on sound faith and sound love and sound steadfastness as they get older, perhaps influenced by their experience and, and their life. Uh, instead, perhaps opting for a more sort of liberal view on uh, theology and things rather than this kind of strict sound truth of the gospel that uh, Paul is so keen for Titus and his churches in Crete to stand by. Uh, I was once asked to preach 
uh, at a church by a minister who was fairly liberal in his, his theology. And I said, I, I'm happy to preach, but I will be firm on the gospel, on human sin and our need for salvation in Jesus alone. And there is no grace outside of that. And he basically said, well, I used to be strong on the gospel like that, too. I used to really believe it. I felt I had the right to preach the gospel. But now, you know, my, my experience of life has taught me that I should just be gentle and I shouldn't really challenge. And I'm not sure I should be teaching the gospel to people. People are on their own journeys and have their own thoughts. He had not remained sound in his faith and in his perseverance in his love, had he? After my sermon, he didn't speak to me and I wasn't asked to preach again, but that's another story. But it is concerning, isn't it, when men are compromised in the faith or in Christian love or in endurance. Uh, for it reverses verse five, it brings malign on the word of God if we compromise on sound doctrine. Uh, ironically, uh, that minister who I was talking to you about felt he was loving people more by not teaching them the gospel whereas actually he was condemning all those who heard him to judgment because they didn't hear the gospel it's the opposite of love so as we get older perhaps we will grow more gentle or, or liberal if you like in our judgment of other people and our understanding of life I, I think that's probably a good thing isn't it that's why the experience of older men is so valuable our understanding of culture is better. But one thing that we must not grow soft or liberal or, or weak in as we get older as men is sound doctrine. We're to remain sound in faith in Jesus alone. We're to remain sound in love for God and for others. And we're to remain sound in endurance, in perseverance. Uh, so they're the qualities that older men, most men, should have. Uh, secondly, then, godliness for older women. Have a look at uh, verse 3. Likewise, so in a similar way, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, that word reverent, firstly, implies that uh, women ought to behave in a way, as should men really, uh, that is worthy and respectful of someone who worships God. Uh, the word was used originally in the temple in the, in the Old Testament of how women ought to behave within the temple grounds. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 10 puts it like this, uh, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. In other words, behave in a way that is, looks right, is worthy, acceptable as someone who worships God. Uh, secondly, older women are not to be slanderers. Uh, perhaps the older men of Ephesus uh, were too dangerously liberal in their theology, and perhaps older women in Ephesus were slanderous. Uh, perhaps envious or gossiping to bring others down for their own gain or, or sport. And perhaps it's a challenge for women today. I don't want to suggest anything. But to choose envy or annoyance towards others leads to slander, doesn't it? All too easily. Instead, women should be choosing, uh, as we're about to see, to teach what is good to all those around them, not, not slandering. Uh, thirdly, don't drink too much. Uh, one for men and women throughout the New Testament. In fact, uh, it will bring shame on the church, on the word of God. So we're not addicted to too much wine. Uh, fourthly, teach what is good. Uh, what is good then? What should they teach? Who should they be teaching? Well, that comes under our next category, godliness for younger women. So uh, have a look at verse four and five. 
This is what older women can then do if they behave in a right way. They can then urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, that, that word again, and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. I don't think the, we can emphasize the importance of these two verses in our culture today, can we? Uh, growing a godly family simply uh, does not rely on the science of creating babies, as I think today's culture would see things, wouldn't they? We can create children, that's a family. Mothers and wives, according to this passage, are key to, the, to successful families. And so older women are to teach younger women how to love their children and husbands and to choose God's order of things by choosing submission to their husbands as well. Our culture today has so devalued the acceptability of perhaps a husband being head of a family and a woman choosing submission and service to their husband that it seems wrong even me just saying it, doesn't it? We considered last week, though, the example of Jesus choosing submission to God the Father, and that hardly devalues his role, does it? Or God the Father having headship over Jesus, his son. Or Jesus having headship over the church and us choosing submission. These are examples and models in the Bible to show us the glory of God. They're not devaluing roles and models to have. So women, if you love God, then choosing, if you're married, to serve and love your husband and your children brings great glory to God. And it will not malign the word of God. But refusing to do that may well uh, do the opposite. It's not a lesser role. It's not of little importance. Women, you are essential to healthy and godly families and marriages. If God has made your wife or a mother, that is a glorious thing to be and to praise and glorify God within. And how sad that our world devalues those roles in our culture when they are so significant. Uh, it doesn't mean a kind of silent submission and an, or an abusive leadership. Uh, they're dismissed completely in the rest of scripture as well. Quite the opposite. Women are challenged, as we're about to see, to work hard uh, for their families. Men in other passages are called to worship their wives. That's how important and significant these relationships are. But the world is messing about with God's design for family, and it messes about at its peril. Uh, perhaps as we see more same-sex marriages and relationships, now adopting children or, or scientifically growing them in some, some countries, uh, this world and her people will suffer because they're messing with God's design, how different the Christian church should be. Of course, we, as a church, welcome anyone from any background and circumstance and situation uh, who are not in line with God's plan, but actually isn't that the point where none of us are in line with God's plan, whatever our background or experience or present circumstances are. We all live in sin. We're all impure without Jesus, as we saw from that first verse. But if we accept the grace of God, if we accept his salvation for us, then we also will want to live and accept his glory by living in a godly way before him. So we need to take these sort of words and verses seriously, even if the world doesn't like it. Uh, just a note on women who are told to remain busy at home. This doesn't need to conjure up the kind of modern view of a, a housewife chained to the kitchen sink. Uh, 
Proverbs 31 would be a great place to go if you'd like to think more about what it means to be busy at home. And my goodness, have you got your work cut out? Running businesses, clothing your family, sorting out the finance. There's so much to do, uh, and I don't envy you. But a, a wife of noble characters, Proverbs 31 describes, uh, is busy uh, all the time. I think the principle here and in Proverbs 31 is that if we are a mother or a wife, our duty, our, our call, our way of glorifying God is to prioritize family. And so wherever possible, however countercultural and politically incorrect this sounds, uh, mums, your first duty is to your children and, and giving birth to them and feeding them and, and nurturing them. Uh, and if you need to run businesses and work for that, brilliant, that's part of your role, but it shouldn't come at the expense of family and you should be doing that for the benefit of your family it's not actually any different for men we ought to work for the benefit of our family but it's specific that women bring the bring glory to god by being submissive to their husbands and serving their family in this way that is how you bring glory to god if you're not married then of course men and women are to work for jesus not ourselves it's the same principle uh, but the difference if, if you are married and you have children is you prioritize your husband and your children. And that is the way you glorify Jesus. And that is a great thing, however odd that sounds in our culture. Uh, Jesus was not furthering his own career, was he, when he left the glory of heaven, came down to earth and gave up everything for his children, for those he calls into his family. Don't we want to be like him, sacrificing it all for the sake of those that we love? Uh, godliness for younger men, our next one, uh, verse six. Uh, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now, as stereotypes go, this is an easy one, isn't it? Young men, be more self-controlled. I think we're all happy with that one. Uh, and... Uh, but it is one that's come up for uh, all these different groups going through. And then here comes a few examples of what self-control might look like in verses seven to eight. In everything, set them. So this is speaking uh, to Titus or older men, the example they've set to younger men. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, in a culture that elevates self, uh, perhaps unwittingly or unrealizingly, we devalue the value of learning from those who are older from us. We devalue the lives of integrity that we could be following the example of. We devalue those who are sound in their conduct and their speech, because it's all about me and what I would like to do and how what I think is right for me. Uh, it's a challenging reminder then, isn't it? In verse seven, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. This is how Jesus lived as a man on earth as well, isn't it? The same example he gives to older men, younger men, older women, younger women. He lived in an integral way that enabled 12 of his closest friends to follow him through extraordinary circumstances. He lived so seriously that he was able to die in our place 
for those who he loved. It's a challenging example for those of us who want to live godly lives. And then finally, uh, godliness for slaves. Uh, this may be advice for slaves, but I think there's principles we can still uh, apply to our workplaces today, to our employers. Uh, so verse 9 and 10. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Our aim, as we've seen in all our relationships earlier then, in, in our relationship with those that we serve, uh, our employers, perhaps uh, the most obvious principle here, is to, to uh, make the word of God, Jesus, look attractive in the way that we behave. And as such, we don't cut corners or talk back or perhaps talk behind the backs of our employers or steal from them. or we, Instead, we try to please them. We impress them. We prove that we are trustworthy in our work. Now, of course, that's not at the expense of our integrity that we've already talked about, our, our sound doctrine. It's not at the expense of our love for our families, as we've already talked about. It's not at the expense of what we believe to be true from the Bible. But within that context, we work hard and dil diligently for our employers as if uh, we within the boundaries of what is fitting for our contracts or our agreements that we have with them. What I'm trying to say is we're not slaves, but we are have a duty to attract those we work for and with to the truth of the gospel so that they will be attracted to the gospel, we're told. It is a challenge uh, for our workplaces uh, and the things and the people that we know there. I wonder if we need to reflect on some of the ways we've treated or thought about or talked about uh, our employers this week. So to conclude, without these behaviours in our church and without the sound teaching and example being shown in the male and female roles and characteristics God has ordained within a family context, we will bring shame on the word of God. We will bring shame and dishonour to God himself. But in the context of Jesus, his first coming with grace, his second coming with glory, that blessed hope before us based on the salvation we have behind us. All we are really asked to do in this whole chapter is to be like Jesus, whom we love. And so why wouldn't we want to follow his example? That's 11 to 14 again to close. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that uh, challenges much of our understanding of culture around us. Help us to reflect on these verses. Help us to think how we can glorify you most in the positions we've been put in. 
whether as husbands, whether as wives, whether as single men, whether we have children, whether we don't, whether we have jobs, whether we don't, whether we're young or old, may we be people who seek to uh, live lives that model the Lord Jesus, who gave up everything to come and serve and to sacrifice for his children whom he loves. May we have that attitude of godliness and self-control in all aspects of our life. And may we think more about this as we go through this week for your glory and with the blessed hope of assurance before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.